Chasing Lights So that was my childhood in Alaska. Over the next 10 years, I went to college, started a career, fell in love, got married, and then started another career. I visited home once or twice a year, usually on a summer vacation or Christmas visit. Although it was difficult every time, the ache of leaving softened with familiarity. And even though I was changing myself fast and adapting to life outside, I thought that Alaska was actually doing most of the changing, and I wasn't completely wrong. Global warming was already apparent in the 1980s. The solid blanket of snow from November to May was no longer solid. Rain was a common occurrence in December and even January. The Portage Glacial Field, once bordering the Seward Highway, had retreated over a mile, and the visitor's center had to show tourists the glacier in slideshows, not open windows. All the glaciers are melting every year, leaving behind a very different place. New plants and animals have taken up residence, and existing life is having trouble adapting. Humans have changed as well. Alaska always had a misanthropic bent to it, but much like the rest of the world, it is becoming more violent, volatile, and reactionary than before. People are straining to keep up with change. Now, before I left Alaska the first time, I dreamt that I was kneeling on the side of the Glen Highway, looking at a pool of oil dripping from our pickup truck. The surface was shiny black with rainbows. And suddenly a shape emerged out of the goo, the head of a fish swimming in the pool. It looked at me, gasping and trying to find air, just like the fish I used to catch. Help me. It gasped. There's no more air. Every step I took left an impression on a place that I loved. It didn't matter how careful, how nice, or how compassionate I tried to be. My presence caused harm. Is this related in some way to what the Christians call original sin? To me, it was. So what do we do about it? I, I don't know. But after 10 years of visiting every year or so, I haven't gone back in 30 years. But Alaska stayed with me, and so did my family. After the first year of college, I returned home to work in a salmon processing plant. Now, college students often did that because it was such good money. Most of it earned in overtime pay. While the salmon were running, we would work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. It was an exhausting grind, but after a few days, I settled into it. I worked in a freezer that was kept well below zero to flash freeze the fish. With ice picks and shovels, we would strip the frozen fish off the stainless steel shelves and sort them by subspecies into various baskets. When we left the freezer at the end of the day, the 65 degree temperatures outside felt tropical in comparison, and the frost all over my clothes would then melt 
and it became clear that the frost was made of frozen fish slime. With the cold and the slime, I forgot that it was summer. My mother had recently bought a new car, so her old one was available, a bright yellow Volkswagen Dasher station wagon that I could drive every day to the fish plant. And generously, she also offered to give me the car to take with me to college. There were some repairs to do, but nothing I couldn't handle after the summer paychecks. At the beginning of September, I packed my things and backed out of the driveway. Everyone waved as I turned the car and drove away. And for some reason, that first day of driving, I kept looking out the windshield and tearing up. One more time passing through the Matanuska Valley. One more time on the Glen Highway through the Chugach Range. One last time to Toke and the Canadian border 500 miles away. On the second day, I started on the Alcan to retrace the route we followed 12 years before in the VW camper. The roads were better, but there were still stretches of gravel to help keep it real. A couple of days later, I made it past Whitehorse and on to British Columbia. The car was running well, and I was getting used to the 12-hour-a-day driving routine. And towards evening, as the sun was starting to set, the tape deck on my car started to play in slow motion. Billy Joel didn't sound as perky as usual. And thinking the player was broken, I turned it off. Rain started to fall, and I switched on the windshield wipers. But when I did, the engine started to sputter. I turned off the wipers. I hadn't seen a gas station for 20 miles, and I doubted that anyone on the road could fix what was wrong with the car. I clenched the steering wheel, made sure all electrics were off, and resisted turning on the headlights even as twilight got darker. Up ahead, I saw a sign for a campground. The engine stuttered as I pulled in and up to an empty spot past the other campers. Now dark, I stopped the car, breathed, then popped the hood on the engine. And there it was, just like my dad's truck years before, a shredded belt between the engine and the alternator. I had a spare in the back of the car since my father had insisted, and I quickly replaced the belt. But the battery was dead. There was nothing to be done at that point, so I pulled out my sleeping bag and went to sleep in the back. But the next morning, I woke up early before anyone else in the campground. It was possible that someone might be able to jump my battery, but I would have to wait a while for someone to wake up. I leaned on the back of the car, looking out at the forest, when a six-year-old boy came up to me. His family was camped out next door, and he had woken up before his parents, who were still sleeping. He was lonely. He looked in the back of my car and saw the unicycle and juggling equipment I had packed next to the sleeping bag and luggage. Are you a clown? he asked. I thought about it a bit and said, well, I'm going to clown school. Uh, do you want to juggle with me? I gave him three tennis balls and showed him how to juggle. And after a while, the boy's father came out of his camper looking disheveled and grateful. Thank you, thank you, he said. We were so glad to get some sleep. What, what can we do to help you? I didn't even have to ask. But after explaining to him what my situation was, he ran back to his camper and brought out an industrial-grade battery charger. In no time at all, my car was fixed. 
I told the boy to keep the tennis balls and waved as I drove on my way. Without realizing it, a piece of my father's luck had passed down to me. Things can look grim and uncertain, but there is hope. It can get better. There's always someone on the road who has the precise part needed to solve a problem. Sometimes you just have to wait and maybe throw some balls in the air. And maybe, instead of chasing lights, we should just wait for lights to happen. <laughs>